and this afternoon. We want to get, jump straight into our lesson tonight. I want to ask you a question as we begin our lesson tonight. Have you ever been considered to be odd? Now that's a pretty strong feeling, you know, to be considered to be odd. A number of years ago, Marlene and I were in uh, the Atlanta area on a Sunday, and so we decided to go to one of the local congregations. And we walked in, and one of the gentlemen who was there says, You must be a preacher. I said, Yes, sir. How could you tell? He said, Well, you just look like one. I don't know how preachers look. I don't know if we're odd or whatever, but I know one thing. We've been considered, or, or we, we've thought about the idea of being odd, and sometimes we just get used to that. But tonight, as we think about it, I'm not necessarily talking about being odd from the standpoint of, uh, of life itself and, and you individually, but I want to think about tonight the idea that people have sometimes of the Lord's church. As a member of the Lord's church, you may have been considered to be odd because of a number of things, and people sometimes wear that with a, with a badge of honor. And they'll look at you and they'll say, yes, sir, says the Bible says that we're to be a peculiar people. And they'll quote Titus chapter 2 at verse 14 or 1 Peter chapter 2 at verse number 9. And they'll point out the King James Version talks about us being a peculiar people. Well, the only problem with that is that's not what the word means. It doesn't mean for us to be odd. It simply says that we are a purchased people if you look at other translations, and there are other passages where that idea is clearly pointed out to us. Uh, in the book of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, the Bible says, "...in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire..." Possession, same word that's used in the book of 1 Peter and uh, also in the book of Titus. It, I, the idea is we're a people for God's own possession. But it's not our topic tonight to deal with that. People still think about us being odd when it comes to mechanical instruments of music. They look at the Lord's church, maybe they will visit or maybe they'll say something in regard to, to the music that we have and, and, and there's some possible thoughts that people have along the way. Uh, they may accuse us of being those people who don't believe in music. And, and it may be that they're thinking about how boring the service might be without the sound of an instrument in it. But as a matter of fact, members of the Lord's Church do believe in music. We believe in singing. That is a form of music, and so we do that. And it's not true that we do not believe in mechanical instruments of music. Now, if you had been at our house a number of years ago, you would have heard the sounds of instrumental music that rang throughout the whole neighborhood. Not just the house, the whole neighborhood. As Daniel learned to play the trumpet, and Rachel learned to play the French horn, and Daniel learned to play the guitar, and the keyboard, and the harmonica, and oh, whatever else he could play. The point is not that we don't believe in music. It's not that we don't believe in mechanical instruments of music. The point is we don't believe in mechanical instruments of music in worship to God. And so tonight, as we think about that idea, is it really a sin? Is it really that big a deal to worship God or attempt to worship God in using mechanical instruments of music? Is it really that, uh, should we really be fussing over that? Is it something that I should be concerned about? 
For some members of the church, it seems that there's a growing number of folks who, who view instrumental music, or, or rather the a cappella music that we use in the, the worship assemblies, as an embarrassing relic, if you will, of a time gone by that really needs to be buried. And, and, and as you think about that, is that the case? And, and not, only, not only that, but young people, these young people even sitting over here and throughout our assembly tonight, they're going to be bombarded by friends who, who wonder why. And, and they ask, why does the church where you attend, why doesn't it have a piano or, or a band or, or, or you know, a, a big orchestra of some kind? Why? And so our young people, you know, they're facing that. We face it. You face it. Many of you at work. And so how, how, is it really that big a deal? Is it really a sin in order to do that kind of thing? Well, I want us to do something tonight, probably look at this in, in a little bit unfamiliar light. I want us to look and think about some things in regard to, to, to instrumental music and sin, and let's see. There are five things that I'll present to you tonight, if I have time to do that. And, and as we begin, we're going to jump straight into it. Let me just ask you a question. These are five questions that, that we'll ask. Number one tonight, is it a sin to do something the Lord has not authorized? Is it a sin to do something the Lord has not authorized? Now look at Colossians chapter 3, verse number 17. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks unto the Father through Him. Whatever you do in word, that's in preaching. Whatever you do in deed, that's in practice. We are to do it in the name of. Now what does that mean? Well, tonight we'll suffice it to say that it means simply by the authority of. I wish I had time to deal with that more in particular, but if someone comes beating on your door and says, open the door in the name of the law, they're saying, open the door, because we've got a warrant that says we're coming in to search your house, or we're coming in to arrest you. We have the authority of the United States government, the courts, and all of the things that are related to that. We have that authority to come into your house. And so to do something in the name of someone is to do something by their authority. Now, in answer to the question... Is it a sin to do something the Lord has not authorized? I suggest that we talk to two men, and we can't literally do that tonight, but we can go and read the account, a man by the name of Nadab, or men by the name of Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu, according to Leviticus chapter 10 at verse number 1, were the sons of Aaron. They were priests. So according to that passage, the Bible says, the sons of Aaron each took his censer, put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered, watch this, English Standard Translation, unauthorized fire before the Lord. If you're reading from the King James, it simply says strange fire. But again, if you, if you do your research, you're going to understand that the strange there is the idea of unauthorized um, and a matter of fact, as you go to the end of the verse, which he, the Lord, had not commanded them. Now, basically what they did is the same thing that, that we're talking about tonight. Is it a sin in order to do something 
in worship to God that God has not authorized for us to do. Well, that's what Nadab and Abihu did. What was the result of them doing that? Look at verse number 2. Verse number 2 says, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. It didn't work out too well for them, what they were doing, did it? It didn't work out so well because God himself caused them to be put to death. Why? They had used fire that God had not authorized for them to use. Now, a lot of times when we look at this passage and we're talking about the concept of what we're talking about tonight, people will stop at verse number 2, but I want us to look together at verse number 3. In verse number 3, there Moses is talking to Aaron, the father of these two men. And the Bible says, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. I'll be set apart as different. I'll be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. And the Bible says, And Aaron held his peace. What was it that God was telling Aaron through Moses? What was it that he was saying? Do it my way. You set me apart as the one who is the ruler, the authority, the one who authorizes things, and you do it the way that I say, so that I myself will be glorified before the people. What do we do when we sing? We're singing praises to God, are we not? Yes, we get a benefit out of it. We're being taught by the words that are there, but we're praising God. We're glorifying God, trying to glorify God. These people didn't do it the way God said do it. And they were consumed with fire. And God pointed out to Aaron, he said, this is the way it's going to be. I I will be sanctified and I will be glorified. And did you notice that last part? That satisfied Aaron. Aaron understood. Aaron held his peace. Those were his two boys. And he knew at that point. They had done sin. They had done wrong. And so, when you ask the question, is it a sin to do something the Lord authorized, all you need to do is go back to the book of Leviticus and you'll find that the Lord considers that sin. But, do you remember what we read in Colossians chapter 3, verse 17? We looked at it a minute ago, whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question tonight. Have you ever noticed the verse just before Colossians 3.17? In other words, have you ever noticed Colossians 3.16? Do you remember what Colossians chapter 3 verse 16 says? Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to the Lord. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. Wow, how closely could it be tied to the authority that God gives us, to the, to the idea of, of what God authorizes, whatever you do. But he just got through saying, here's what I want done. And, and in, the, in the case of the music, it is to be 
singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. No wonder when we turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 13 at verse number 15, we read these words. Through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. What was it that Nadab and Abihu were doing? They were in preparation of burning the incense, worshiping God, offering that sacrifice, if you will, to God. Well, we're priests, and we offer a sacrifice, and one of the sacrifices that we're to offer is the singing, the fruit of our lips. And so tonight, is it a sin to do something the Lord has not authorized? He's authorized music, but there's no instrument in it. And the answer to that, according to Leviticus chapter 10, verses 1 through 3, is yes, it is a sin. God is not pleased with it. Number two tonight, is it a sin to substitute our will for the will of God, for the will of the Lord? Is it a sin to substitute our will for the will of the Lord? Look at Ephesians chapter 2, or chapter 5 rather, verse 17. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now we can either be a fool or we can be one who understands what God says. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do. Don't be foolish. Don't be a fool. Come to know and understand what the will of the Lord is. By the way, that's not the only passage where Paul would write about understanding and, and knowing the will of the Lord. In Romans chapter 12, at verse number 2, the Bible says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. By testing. Don't, don't be conformed to the world. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are we doing that? Through the Word of God. So that we'll know, we'll be able to discern what God's will for us and what is good and what is acceptable to Him. Notice Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so over and over again, we see in Scripture that the Bible teaches us that we are to know, understand, and discern, and do the will of God. That is our, that is our goal. But is it a sin to substitute our will for the will of the Lord? I suggest again we go back to the Old Testament, to King Jeroboam and Israel so long ago. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 12, beginning at verse 32, going through 1 Kings chapter 13, verse number 5, we won't take time to read it. I'll fill you in a little bit. You can turn over there and sort of scan along. But as you go over there, the Bible talks about how Jeroboam, who was the king of Israel, he appointed a feast on the day, 15th day of the 8th month. And uh, 
He did that in, in Bethel, a different place than God had authorized. What he was doing, he was sort of copying, if you will, what was being done down in Judah, Judah where Jerusalem was, Judah where the law was being kept. But King uh, Jeroboam, this, this ruler of the northern kingdom, after it had split and divided, he decided he's going he's gonna to develop it his way. Matter of fact, if you have your Bible, notice in verse number 33 of chapter 12, he says, He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day of the 8th month, in the month that he had, watch this, devised in his own heart. Who came up with that day? Well, King Jeroboam did. King Jeroboam did. That wasn't the day the Lord had said. It wasn't even the one that God had told to offer. Uh, 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 he, matter of fact, he wasn't even worshiping God. But he had devised it in his own heart. He instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Well, if you continue on, you're going to find that there's a man of God who comes and confronts King Jeroboam with that. And as a matter of fact, he tells him, he says, this, this altar is going to be torn down. As a sign to you, what I'm saying is true. This altar is going to be torn down. You know what that did? That made King Jeroboam very angry. And the Bible says he reached out his hand to take hold of him. And you know what happened to King Jeroboam's hand? It withered away. Couldn't grab him. God caused at that very moment his hand to wither away. And you know what else happened? If you continue reading down through verse number 5, exactly what the prophet of God said. They poured the ashes that were on that altar out and they tore it down as a sign that God was displeased with what Jeremiah, Jeroboam was doing. But you know what? That's not all. If you continue reading the whole story of Jeroboam and his rule in, in uh, uh Israel, if you go on down to 1 Kings chapter 14 at verse number 16, because of what Jeroboam had done, I want you to see what happens. The Bible says, and he will give Israel up, God is the one who's giving them up, and he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam which he sinned and made Israel to sin. What was Jeroboam doing? He was substituting his will for the will of God. And you know what God calls it? He calls that a sin. Jeroboam sinned and he caused the people of Israel to sin when they followed him in, in, in worshiping these false gods. Now, again, let me ask you another question. Have you ever noticed what immediately follows what Paul says about understanding the will of the Lord. That passage that we read in Ephesians chapter 5, verse number 17. In other words, do you know what Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 say? There the Bible says, after he had said, uh, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. 
Wow. We've already noticed in Colossians that the Bible talks about doing things by the authority. And he had just said, I want you to sing. And now Paul writes and says, understand what the will of God is. Well, we understand that getting drunk is, is a wrong thing, but also he wants us to understand the will of the Lord in regard to worshiping him. What is the will of the Lord? What's the implication here? God wants us to sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in our heart. There's music, but there are no instruments mentioned as being a part of the will of the Lord. Is it a sin to substitute our will for the will of the Lord? Yes, it is. And when we substitute something for singing, when we put playing with it, have we substituted our own will? Absolutely. And so tonight, again, we are confirmed. Well, let's look at number three. Is it a sin if God allowed it in the Old Testament? Is it a sin if God allowed mechanical instruments of music in the Old Testament? Surely if he, he allowed it in the Old Testament, it must be, must be right for us. Now, two things that I want you to remember for people who try to go to the Old Testament for the authorization of something you want to do in worship. Okay? Now, now remember we already said, according to Colossians 3.17, that we have to have uh, authorization for it. But two things that folks who try to go to the Old Testament admit, number one, they admit that there's authority that's necessary. And number two, they admit that they can't find it in the New Testament. So they have to go to the Old Testament to find it. Now, understand that they did use instruments of music in the Old Testament. What does Psalm 150 verses 1 through 6 say? Well, it's filled up with all kinds of instruments. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the trumpet. Praise Him with the lute and harp. Praise Him with the tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with the sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. I don't know about that. That sounds like a pretty good sized band, doesn't it? Praising the Lord. The Old Testament, they did use the Old Testament or didn't use instruments of music in the Old Testament. We're not arguing about that. But again, have you ever noticed Amos chapter 6, verses 4 and 5? That itself is in the Old Testament. Amos writes and says, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp. And like David, invent for themselves instruments of music. How did that verse start? Verse 4. Whoa. Not W-H-O-A. That's what you tell a horse to do. But whoa. W-O-E. 
When you see the word woe, like the horse, you better stop. Because it says there is punishment, there is a problem ahead. A problem with what is happening. And one of the things that he said is the instruments of music came from where? Well, David invented them. But he says, woe to you who keep on doing that. Now, we read out of Psalms where the psalmist says that they're to sing and to praise God with all of these instruments. That's one of those things, I think, that God allowed in the Old Testament, like, like divorce. When Jesus is confronted in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, divorce he tolerated in the Old Testament. But Jesus pointed out from the beginning it was not so. And he pointed people back to what was, uh, God had planned in the beginning, one man for one woman for a lifetime. And now here he says, woe to those who, who, who do what those folks who want to go back to the Old Testament for authorization, woe to those who do that. Again, when you see that word woe, you better stop. Really and truly, can we go to the Old Testament for authorization for the things that we do today? Can we do that? Let's ask the Apostle Paul. We know in Acts chapter 15, and Paul is not necessarily involved, well he is in Acts chapter 15, but Acts chapter 15 verse 1 says, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, that is the Christians, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, that, that, that's pretty, pretty hard uh, teaching, you know. You've got to be circumcised like the Jewish people were circumcised in the Old Testament. Now, Paul is going to take up that topic in the book of Galatians, and he's going to address it as well. Galatians chapter 5 at verse 2, we actually had this reading this morning in our Bible reading. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision... What's the consequence of that? Paul says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. If you're trying to go back and be a Jew and a Christian together, then you're really trying to go back and grasp something that Jesus nailed to the cross. And Jesus becomes of no value to you, no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcisions that he is obligated to keep the whole law. If you go back and you grab this one thing, like these people were trying to get the Galatian brethren to do, if you go back and you get that, then Paul says, if you're going to do that, you've got to do all of it. You've got to do the whole law. Well, what does that mean? Well... We need an altar in here so that we can offer sacrifices, animal sacrifices on certain days. And, and we need to keep the, the, not only that, but we need to go back to Jerusalem. Y'all plan on, planning, on, planning your trips to go to Jerusalem three times a year? Anybody? I mean, we've got to keep the whole thing. That's what Paul said. Christ has become of no advantage to you, and, and if you're trying to do it, you've got to do the whole thing. You've got to do the whole thing. His point is, you're not under that law anymore. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 19, for sake of time tonight, again, Paul is writing, 
this topic of circumcision is there again. He says, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. But what does count? Look at the last part of verse 19. But keeping the commandments of God. Now we've already established in two passages tonight, Colossians 3.16 and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 19, the commands of God are for us to sing. Is it a sin if God allowed it in the Old Testament? Well, just looking at what Paul says about the Galatians that Jesus is not going to do them any good tells me one thing. I'm sinning. I'm sinning. And so we can't go back and get the instruments any more than we can go back and get the circumcision or any more than we can go back and get worship on Saturday or whatever. We can't do that. And so again, we, our conclusion must be that it is a sin. Number four, is it a sin if it is used by the majority? The majority of churches even. Is it a sin even if it's used by all of these, po- the, all these people? Well, again, just like going back to the Old Testament, there's no doubt but that they used instruments of music in the Old Testament. There's also no doubt that the majority of the denominational world today use mechanical instruments of music in worship. That's just a fact. Okay? But what does the Bible say about following the majority? You know what? When I was growing up and I was being taught, you know, about a lot about life and doing things, every once in a while my parents or grandparents, one, would say something like this, well, you know, if you say everybody else is doing it, if everybody was jumping off a cliff, would you go and jump off with them? You know, something to that effect. But what does the Bible say about it? Well, the Bible does have something to say about it, doesn't it? Notice in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. The people are, they have come to Samuel and, and they're telling Samuel this. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Do you know at that time Israel was ruled by judges who would help them get out of the sticky situations they'd gotten themselves into? But the Israelites wanted what? They wanted to be like the majority. Like all the nations around us. Now, that didn't, that didn't make Samuel happy. We understand that. But the Lord had some words to say to Samuel. The Bible says in verse 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Hmm. They already had a king. They had a better king 
than any of the nations around them. And they wanted to get rid of that king and get one like everybody else. They rejected God from being their king over them. Exodus chapter 23 verse 2 says, You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. In Matthew chapter 7 verses 13 and 14, Enter at the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it, in the standard rendering, are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Let me ask you a question. Where's the majority? Where's the majority headed? According to what Jesus himself says. I'm pretty sure that's not a good argument. But I want you to think about some other things tonight, not just from the scriptures, but from history. What was historically done by the others? Do you know? What was historically done by these people that, we, that, that, that some folks now want to be like? Okay? I want to read some things to you, and I actually put that on the screen for you. I want you to notice where I got it before we even start reading it. Notice down at the bottom, it came from the Catholic Encyclopedia, catholic.com, or .org, rather. For almost a thousand years, Gregorian chant, without any instrumental or harmonic addition, was the only music used in connection with the liturgy, the worship. The organ in its primitive and rude form was the first and for a long time the sole instrument used to accompany the chant. But it didn't, it didn't start according to the Catholic Church for a thousand years after Christ. If they made a change from what it had been in the first century, who changed? God or the people. Bible didn't change. Still says the same thing that it did in the first century. So the people must have changed. Here's another one. This came out of the actual book itself, the Catholic Encyclopedia, volume 10, page number 651. By the way, you can go and look these up yourself online. Although Josephus tells us of the wonderful effects produced in the temple by the use of instruments. By the way, what the Jews used to do. The first Christians were of too spiritual a fiber to substitute lifeless instruments for or to use them to accompany the human voice. Clement of Alexandria, six, uh, 165 to 215 severely condemns the use of instruments even at Christian banquets. Chrysostom sharply contrasts the customs of the Christians when they had full freedom with those of the Jews of the Old Testament. He contrasts, he shows the difference between the two. And reminds you, that same Catholic encyclopedia says 
that it was a thousand years before any instrument was introduced. Here's another one back to Catholic.org. The present trend is, however, decidedly away from the instrumental idea and back to purely vocal style. And it's recognized and in many places acted upon that the new version of the liturgical chant proposed by the Catholic world uh, uh, to the Catholic world by Pius X gains its full beauty and effectiveness only when sung without instrumental accompaniment of any kind. Wow. They say we're trending away from it. It started a thousand years too late. Well, the whole church, their whole church started 600 and something years too late, but started a thousand years too late. And now we're trending away from it. Hmm. And we got folks who want to go and be like them. Right? What about what McClintock and Strong in their encyclopedia says. Sir John Hawkins, following the Romish writers in his erudite work, boy, these are some big words, on the history of music makes Pope Vitalian in AD 660 the first who introduced organs into churches. But students of ecclesiastical archaeology are generally agreed that instrumental music was not used in churches till a much later date. For Thomas Aquinas, A.D. 1250, has these remarkable words. Our church does not use musical instruments as harps and psalteries to praise God with all, that she may not seem to Judaize. For those who want to go back to the Old Testament, even folks in 1250 were saying what? If you go and try to get the music... Out of the Old Testament, hmm, you're becoming like a Jew again. Here's some more, very quickly, or, or continuing on with uh, McClintock and Strong. From this passage, we're surely warranted in concluding that there was no ecclesiastical use of organs in the time of Aquinas. It's alleged that Mar uh, Marinus Sanutus, who lived about A.D. 1290, was the first that brought the use of wind organs into churches. But never has either the organ or any other instrument been employed in the public worship in Eastern churches, nor is mention of instrumental music found in all their liturgies, ancient or modern. The Eastern Orthodox Church, think Romania. Not only that, John Calvin, uh, founder of what we know as the Presbyterian Church, said musical instruments in celebrating the praises of God would be no more suitable than the burning of incense, the lighting of lamps, the restoration of other shadows of the law. The papists, that is the Catholics, the papists therefore have foolishly borrowed this as well as many other things from the Jews. Men who are fond of outward pomp may delight in that noise, but the simplicity which God recommends to us by the apostle is far more pleasing to him. Did you catch it? This is in, he lived from 1509 to 1564. He said, they may not have been doing this for about three or four hundred years, but it looks like they got it from the Jews. 
And we can't do that. Here's another one. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, cited by Adam Clark in his commentary set. Mr. Wesley said, I have no objection to instruments of music in our chapels, provided they are neither heard nor seen. Just a good table, I guess. Somewhere. Charles Spurgeon, considered by many to be one of the greatest Baptist preachers to have ever lived, in his commentary on Psalm 42 says, Praise the Lord with heart. Israel was at school and used childish things to help her learn. But in these days, when Jesus gives us spiritual food, one can make melody without strings and pipes. We do not need them. That would hinder rather than help our praise. Sing unto him. This is the sweetest and best music. No instrument like the human voice. You know, I'm not saying these things to cast reflection on any denominational church, but I'm simply pointing out where they came from. They didn't start out using instruments of music. They began to borrow them from the Catholics who had borrowed them from the Jews. And now the majority, it seems, do that. And even the Catholics say, we're trending away from it, going back the other direction. Everybody wants to be like somebody, especially the popular people, don't we? Well, maybe we should seek to be more like Christ, the way He wants things to be done. Number five. Is it a sin if it's not specifically, specifically condemned in the New Testament? In other words, so because there's no thou shalt not, many folks want to say it's okay. As a matter of fact, the Scriptures don't really say anything about music in the New Testament or in worship, many, many folks would say. And since it doesn't say anything about music, then it must be okay. Let me remind you of what Matthew 4, verse 4 says. Man shall not live by bread alone, remember at the, at the uh, temptation of Jesus, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Basically, we could sum that up tonight by saying, live by what the Bible has to say. Paul teaches us that in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, as well as 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37. The Thessalonians accepted what he had preached as the being the Word of God. And in 1 Corinthians 14.37, Paul says, The things which I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. They came from him. Now, it's simply not true that the New Testament does not say anything about music in, in the church, in the worship, is it? Did we not read about singing in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3, verse 16? Yes, we did. And the singing, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to, to one another is inherent. Has inherent within it the gathering of the church. The time when they came together. Folks, we understand about exclusion, don't we? 
Now, we understand about exclusion. What do you mean? Well, you, you get a sore throat, you go to the doctor, and the doctor prescribes you some antibiotics. You take the written prescription, go down to the drugstore, and, and take it to the pharmacist. And, and you know what that doctor didn't have to do? He didn't have to list on that one prescription all the medications that he doesn't want you to take. The only one he had to list is the one that he wants you to take. We understand about exclusion. That's not good enough. You go by McDonald's, you order a Big Mac combo. You pull on around to the window, they didn't tell you how much it was, but when you pull around to the window, they tell you it's going to be $121.47. Now, how many of you would just pull out the money and start rolling it out to get your Big Mac combo? McDonald's is okay, but it ain't that okay. Okay? Somebody's going to say, what? What do you mean? I just ordered a Big Mac combo. And the server's going to say, well, yeah, but I added all the other menu items to it as well. And you say, well, I didn't order them. And that server says, well, you didn't tell me not to. No, but I told you what I wanted. And that's all I wanted. Not more. The New Testament never specifically condemns using ice cream and cake on the Lord's Supper. Does it? You ever read anywhere where it does that? The New Testament never specifically condemns praying to Allah. Does it? Do you read about Allah in the New Testament? Oh. But we know it's wrong. Because we know who we're to pray to and who we're to pray through. We pray to the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. Bible never specifically says you can't take meth, does it? Or heroin or cocaine. Never says thou shalt not. But the principles are there. As we close tonight, and I realize we're going just a little bit long, but as we close tonight, I've given you five reasons showing that the use of instrumental music in Christian worship is a sin. Now, I believe that one sound biblical argument would be enough. You know, under the Old Testament law, you could condemn a person to death at the mouth of two or three witnesses. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't do it with one. You had to have two or three. Even in the New Testament, we have that standard that's set forth. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15, makes it uh, clear that you've got to have the two or three witnesses. The folks tonight have given you five. That far exceeds even what 
standard is set, even in the Old Testament, to put somebody to death. The idea of and the practice of using instruments of music in worship is not just a personal matter between folks. The idea and practice is not just uh, something to which Christians can be sympathetic and say, you do it your way and I'll do it mine. This practice is something to which Christians must stand opposed. It is a big deal because it's sin. And the Bible makes that so clear. And you know what happens to those who persist in sin? Those who persist in any sin, not just talking about this one, but those who persist in any sin is going they're going to lose their eternal soul. That's why it's such a big deal. Souls are at stake. And we've looked at five. We could talk more. I had, I had more that I could add added to this sermon, but I knew I was going to run out of time even with these five. And it may be a little bit like some of the sermons you've heard in the past. It may be a little bit different. But folks, young folks, older folks, Folks who are grounded in the faith and those who are growing in the faith. It is something that God has given us His will about. Something that God has authorized. And something that God wants us to take His word from the New Testament about. And not from the majority. And that is to sing songs of praise to His name that teach and admonish your brothers and sisters in Christ. Tonight this lesson has not been one of an evangelistic nature, but it may be tonight that you need to come to the Lord, you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins, or it may be that you need to come back to the Lord. If we can assist you in any way, why don't you come right now as we stand and sing.